0: I'm going to start with a suggestion, Mon- uh, Thursdays, Thursdays, 10 o'clock, PBS, they have a six-part series on the brain, starting at 10 o'clock, 50.1, if you have antenna TV, <laughs> and, and it's really good, and you can, you can look at it, you can watch the episodes online for the first month. So, first, first episode was, What is Reality? which is perfect for a Buddhist. What is reality? And they go into great depth explaining what it isn't. And, uh, and, and the guy is good. The guy's like a neuroscientist, you know, so he, he knows his stuff, but he's dumbed it down so people like me can understand what he's talking about. And I'll tell you what reality is. It's anything your brain thinks it is. That's pretty much what we're stuck with. So what's real to me may or may not be real to you, depending on your experiences and your education and your practice and all the other stuff. And then the second episode, which was last Thursday, is available, and it's what is me? What is self? How does that work? How do we create ourselves? And as it turns out, and I'm going to just go from memory which is problematic after you see this episode, um, it, it's, we have all like our neurons and interceptors or whatever those things are called, and the, most of them are created by the age of two. And then from two on, we just keep cutting them back. The stuff we don't use goes away. So we become what we don't use. We... We... Are everything, and then we slowly come down to something. And then we die and become nothing. So it works out well. <laughs> so, having said that, I'm going to talk a little bit about my experiences this week and what I came in contact with. Uh, I went to two Catholic high schools and gave three presentations. And, and it was a good experience. It's been a while since I've been in the high schools and spoken to the students. And, and they're a smart bunch, and they're a clever bunch, and they have opinions about everything, even at that level. So, so um, And then yesterday I was at uh, Seal Beach Leisure World, where all the old people live. And, uh, and, and I posted something on Facebook this week which was just perfect it said, you know um, and I'm going to paraphrase and change this a little bit in the West when somebody turns 60 we say they're 60 years old in the East when t- somebody turns 60 they say they're at level 6 which to me sounds much more awesome <laughs> you know, it's like a video game And the older you get, the better you get. So uh, yesterday I was talking to a woman who was uh, at level 8 and just clear as could be. And she said to me, she said, I really liked what you said about loving kindness and compassion. I, I had an epiphany and it was so interesting. I was able to put a bunch of stuff together. So I sort of reconstructed what I said to her, and she says, no, that's not it, because I had to add a lot of my stuff, and then with your little stuff, it became the big stuff, and I finally understood. And I just paused for a moment and thought to myself, you know, nobody ever hears what I say. (laughs) They only hear what they think I say. And, And isn't that how life works? You know, we go around and we're just talking about how we look at the world, and people might agree with us, but then you ask them, and it's completely different from what you've just said or how you see the world. And yet somehow there's a camaraderie built and we all get along sometimes. Then, yesterday, a fellow said at Leisure World, I have a friend, and he went to an interfaith dialogue, and they had invited some atheists and some secular humanists And so the Christians made the statement if you do something good, that means you believe in God. And so the atheists and the secular humanists, you know, would struggle and say, well, no, we're just doing it for harmony and we're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And I know if you take one O out of good, you have God, but that's not why we do it. And I thought, well, what would a Buddhist say? And they hadn't invited any Buddhists. But if they had invited me, (laughs) what I would have said is, no, we don't do good because of God. If what we do is good, it's because we're trying to reduce suffering. That's pretty much it. That's sort of like how we look at the world, you know. It's filled with suffering. And if I can be skillful and reduce some suffering, it might be interpreted as being good, or God's works, but we would simply say it's just because suffering occurs and we are now looking for the end of suffering. And we have found a teacher that Jesus didn't teach us how to end suffering and God won't end our suffering, but the Buddha, through his wisdom, compassion, and kindness, said, I'm going to figure it out and I will share with you how I did it. Now the same problem arises, you see, when we listen to the teachings of the Dharma and we hear it the way we think it's being said. Maybe not the way the Buddha is saying it, but the way we think he's saying it. So that's a real disconnect, and that takes a long time to overcome, and I think the only way we can overcome that is to meditate. We need to cultivate pure mind, if you will, to hear it what's being taught without opinions or preferences, which is really hard because my whole world is dedicated to opinions and preferences. And I get asked to speak. And what do I talk about? My opinions. And then people say, I don't agree with you. I said, well, it's just my opinion. And they go, okay. So back at school now, and we have some questions. We have some confusion. We have some confusion. One is about the first precept, not to take life. And one of the young men at the Catholic school said, you know, war war does, does change the world and make a difference. Think about the Civil War, when we were freeing the slaves. I said, well, now let me see. How many people died? Like a million? And I said to him, you know, humans are really smart. And you would think we'd be smart enough to do something other than war. You would think we could find a solution that didn't involve killing a million people. And we continued to do that. And we're not good at war. I, I hate to say it. Americans don't seem to be good at war. The, last, the first war was the Great War, to end all wars. <laughs> well, that didn't work. So then we had the second war. And and that didn't end all wars either. Then we had Korea, we had Vietnam. Really wasn't any winners or losers in those two wars, just a lot of people died. The war we did win was Grenada. We were there in a flash, saving those students. Anybody remember Grenada? Well, they don't have an army, but we won. And we got the students. Then we have Iraq and we have Afghanistan, and we're still not sure who won those. We know who lost those, all the people that died. And the, worst, the saddest thing about war is all those old people, level sixers and above, who can't leave. Some of them are crippled. Some of them have never known anything but their house. So there's a war going on. Where are they going to go? And then the cats and dogs, all those pets that are just in the streets trying to survive. They get killed too. All this death and destruction. For what? You know? So he listened to me speak, but I don't know if he really heard what I had to say. But then, who does? They only hear what they think I say. Another fellow, I was talking about possessions. Second precept, not to take what is not given. And I said, you know what? Ownership is an illusion. We don't own anything. You don't own yourselves. You don't own your car. You don't own your husband or wife. You don't own your cat or dog. You don't own anything. And this guy raised his hand, just shot up and said, "I own stuff." <laughs> what are you talking about? It's crazy talk. You know. So he came from a family that owned a lot of stuff, and he was happy to own stuff. But the problem with owning stuff, which is simply an illusion for using stuff, is that your stuff will break, it'll get lost, somebody will take it. And then you won't have the stuff you think you own. And you'll have so much suffering. And if you just use stuff, and then somebody takes it, you say to yourself, "Well, now it's their turn to use it." And then you use something else. It's OK. You can pass it along. you know? So I thought that was interesting, too, that there was this real indoctrination that goes on, and of course, we all went through it. It's called high school. And, and they tell us what the world is all about. And then we create our reality from that. And we have peer pressure. And we have, you know, relationships. So I talked about the third precept and, and, and about relationships and love. Now, when you're in high school, love is really important. Because they love a lot of stuff. So I said, well, you know, in Buddhism, love never stands alone. Never stands alone. Buddhists don't say love that or love this. Now you'll see some posting on Facebook that will give you the idea that Buddhism is talking about love or the Buddha is talking about love, but the Buddha never talked about love. He talked about loving kindness. The word kindness was always connected to that word love because I think if you don't put kindness at the end of love, you have lust. You don't love your shoes with kindness. You love your shoes with attachment. You know what I'm saying? And so when people say, I love something, what I hear is, I'm attached to it. And because I'm attached to it so much, it has changed my life in such a wonderful way. You know? So that car, that person, that dog or cat, I love my cat, and then they die. And you just, then it just breaks your heart instead of makes your heart. And it's so sad. And yet if we could have cared for the cat or cared for the shoes or cared for the person with kindness, that relationship would have been a lot healthier, I think. So I don't advocate love. I advocate loving kindness. And that way we know if we have a healthy love or not because of the kindness. So the kindness, the activity of kindness is called, in my mind, compassion. So love is the intention and compassion, kindness, is the activity of love. And then we continued. And we talked about the fifth precept. And I, I and, and never thought about it in this way until I'm looking at a bunch of high school students. The fifth precept, I said, is the hardest precept for any Buddhist to to keep. I said, some people spend thousands and thousands of dollars to hold that precept. Rehab. Retreats. Just to hold that precept. Not to become intoxicated. We don't know how important that is until we've lost it. Until we can't hold that precept anymore. And the problem with not being able to hold that precept in Buddhism is that sobriety is required for enlightenment or nirvana. Can't get it without sobriety. That's one of the foundational aspects of the Eightfold Path, the five precepts, the beginning of our practice. So here we have, you know, people who have lost it and then found it again will tell you they have anniversaries. They know to the day how long they've been sober. That's how important the fifth precept is. And yet we all sort of giggle, and when I created my little uh, ukulele song about the five precepts and, I will practice not to get high, practice not to get high. Everybody, you know, chuckles and smiles. But the importance of that fifth precept is so amazing and so difficult. And somehow, in our culture, when we turn 21, we're given permission to not be sober. It's okay now. You can legally become insane for short periods of time. You can legally become so dumb you can't even put a complete sentence together. <laughs> yes. That's called party. And and then you and it just seems like a, a fun exciting thing to do. And then years later you just sort of look at all the time you wasted getting high and going, "Wow. You know, I could have been thinking. You know that, that commercial, I could have had a V8? I could have been thinking about stuff. I could have been reflecting on the true nature of reality without being more delusional and more ignorant than I already am. You know, I was born sort of high, sort of dumb, not being able to look at the world and see it for what it really is. And it's taken me, personally, years and years of meditation and practice to sort of glimpse just once in a while at the true nature of reality. And it's unpleasant. It's not good. The last time I was on the 405, bumper to bumper, I'm thinking to myself, where are all these people going? And then the thought came to my, to me, I'm glad I don't have to live forever. You know, <laughs> One day this will just be a bad thought, and the next day it won't even be a thought. Wow. So as we fine-tune our practice and start to see the true nature of reality, it validates what the Buddha said about this world. This world is filled with life and death, and in between there is suffering. And somebody says, that's so pessimistic. And I said to them, it's so realistic. And that's where the Buddhist sense of humor comes from. We're all trying to make our glass half full. It's got to make you chuckle once in a while. <laughs> when you look at how difficult this world is and how it's going to end for all of us, And yet we have positive mental attitude about today's the best day of my life. Well, a Buddhist would say today's the only day of your life. (laughs) Well, so use it wisely. It's just fascinating that we can look at the world and create it moment by moment. And that's exactly what the program, the series on the brain is telling us, that we create this thing. And we create this thing because of experiences, because of education, because of peer pressure, because of families, because of all the things necessary for us to have our reality. We are conditional creatures. We don't do it ourselves. We never have. you know. And even the brain, we are one of the contributing factors in our brain. But we're not the only reason we think the way we do. We think the way we do for a lot of reasons and as I continue to meditate I start to see more and more reasons why I'm thinking the way I do and realizing long long ago for some reason I gave my choice away I chose to believe A instead of B I chose to understand that I'm being educated so I can have a career and a family and actually I was being educated so I could produce and consume so I could be a viable member of our community, America. And I would be given receipts showing how well I did. Because now I have this, and I have this, and I have this, and I have this, and my room is full. And they're still giving me receipts. So is it okay to let go of all that stuff? What will happen to us if we don't be, aren't an American anymore, or aren't a male or female anymore, or a Democrat or Republican anymore? What if you come to a place where we just are The experience we're having right now what does that mean how does that feel and then how does that infect the world around us because that world is us how does it change us so what I have found in my meditation practice is it continues to make me more and more transparent and it is less important for me to believe in a certain way I can understand why people believe in that way and I can understand why it's important to believe in that way. And I can understand why Buddhism says it's necessary to have the five precepts as the foundation of our practice. Because all that gives us an anchor or a place to work from. So we just don't go completely insane and not know anything about anything. Which is like really what this path is getting us to. This path is getting us to don't know. Now I have a friend on Facebook, who just became a Dharma teacher. And he's, he's probably level six. And, and, and he posted the, the, the certificate on, on his wall. And it's really nice. It has like a gold stamp. And it's really fancy lettering. And, and it looks good. Now, anybody posts anything on Buddhism, he's going to go in there and tell them they're wrong. <laughs> because he knows now. He's got the certificate. (laughs) He knows what is right and what is wrong. So I posted something about the Dhammapada. And the particular Dhammapada that I posted had stories. And then it had the verse from the Dhammapada and then it had commentary. And he had never seen the stories before. So he said, Asians made these stories up. Well, I'm thinking, yeah, I think the Buddha wasn't Asian. You know, (laughs) and that's probably the case. And as it turns out, the history of the stories is from fifth century Buddha Gosha, and he was doing commentary. And it seems to me that maybe he thought people could understand the Dhammapada verse if it was connected to a story to give it a context to give it more meaning. You know, because sometimes it's hard to read something that's only two sentences long and get the entire meaning. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, I like this guy better before he was a Dharma teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I'm thinking, we've got to be so careful when we start to become experts in anything. Because we're going to drive all our friends and family away. Because we're going to disagree with them all the time. And so yesterday at... Leisure World, somebody said, my talk led them to have an epiphany. And I said, I give you nothing. My job is to give you nothing. Oh, you gave us so much. No, I just showed up. I just had a few things to say. What you heard was my brain using my mouth and your ear using your brain. But if you look around the room, what did I leave behind? Not even a footprint. My shoes were clean. I bring nothing. It's all about you. And they continued to argue with me. Well, well, why do you come here then? Because I'm invited to bring nothing. (laughs) I don't have an agenda. I'm not proselytizing. I'm not trying to change you in any way. I'm just coming to share some ideas and then I leave. And if you appreciate what I said, well, thank you. But I can't accept the praise or even the blame if I want to have good mental health. I just have to sort of be neutral about myself. you know. And, and I look back at my life and I see all the things I could have done better. And I have to love myself in spite of that. And all the things I really did well, and I have to love myself in spite of that. And I just have to say, okay... In every situation, I am a conditional creature, that certain conditions arise, and so do I. And if the conditions are correct, I might be a catalyst. If the conditions are not correct, I may be the village idiot. And can you come to a place in your practice where that's okay? Where it's okay to just be who you are right now, knowing that that person will be dead soon and somebody else will take it place in the next hour or two or day or week. That we are continually manifesting in a very unique and special way. And all the people we used to be have a causal connection and it's called memory. And after viewing that thing on the brain and looking how the memory works, you know. Memory keeps changing all the time and the memory we had at five is not the memory we have at twenty-five. Because at five you were just a little person and you looked up a lot and everything was huge. You know? And I've gone back to places where I was a little person and marveled at how small everything was. Because when I was little, everything was just huge and vast and almost eternal. So then you have to change that memory and put it into its proper context. So all along, not only are we becoming different people, but we're changing the people we used to be to fit into the new story. And now what the new story is, I am a practicing Buddhist. So what does that mean? If you're a secular Buddhist, and I got hassled for this one, if you're a secular Buddhist, I say, then you are very much concerned about life. You want to have a good and skillful life and reduce suffering. If you are a religious Buddhist, you want to have a good life. You want to be skillful. You want to reduce suffering. But you also want to die well. So a secular Buddhist doesn't really think about dying as much as a religious Buddhist because we have karma and we have rebirth. And the secular Buddhist said, well, we don't need karma, Stephen Batchelor, we can still have Buddhism without karma. And the religious Buddhist says, no, you need karma because karma is exactly the thing that's being reborn in the next lifetime. So if you discount karma, you're not very concerned about what's ahead in your next lifetime. Karma is like the wake behind a boat. And as we die, the boat sinks, but the wake continues and attaches to the next boat. And it goes on and on and on. So, a woman on Facebook said, but Stephen Batchelor's religious? Well, maybe. I've never met the man. I know he's really smart. And, and that's good. <laughs> but in, in my world, it's important to have a good life and a good death. And then the idea, well, how the hell do you have a good death if you have a good life? And I think that's when it's really important to understand how karma works and how we can use karma to our advantage in this lifetime and the next. And the five precepts are designed to change our speech karma and our action karma. Right from the get-go, the foundation of our practice is changing what we say and what we do. And we start with the five precepts, which changes what we say and what we do in a skillful way that reduces suffering. Now... Intention is also part of karma, intention, speech, and action. So now we have to change our intention, now we have to change our mind, and we change our mind through cultivating it through meditation. And what's the problem with having a brain? Well, you gotta watch this series. But let me tell you what I think the problem with having a brain is, is the brain has, not the body, but the brain has greed, hatred, and delusion. As filters, So, our experience is filtered through greed, hatred, and delusion, and oftentimes the choices we make are based on those filters greed, hatred, and delusion. And what we need to do is change out the filters and replace them with generosity, compassion, and wisdom. Then our experience changes as well, and we automatically, theoretically, become more skillful, reduce suffering. And our thought then leads our speech and action into the world. And we don't need those monitors of the five precepts quite as much as we did in the beginning. That it becomes just sort of a natural evolution. We, we evolve into the five precepts. It's no longer practice, it is now performance. Okay. But that still doesn't tell us why it's important to do all this stuff, because you'll do all this stuff for a really long time if you're lucky. So I've been doing all this stuff now since 1978. And I don't really see a lot of difference. I'm not enlightened. I haven't achieved nirvana. I still eat too many Hostess cupcakes. <laughs> but that's just me. And, and, and so what's happening? Well, I must say that my thought process is becoming more skillful. It's becoming a little happier in spite of all the suffering we see and experience every day. Inside my head, I have moments of happiness and joy, which aren't necessarily expressed in what I do or what I say. But that's the joy of having moments of silence, to just let them manifest. The cat chasing the butterfly and not catching it. How joyful is that in a backyard, you know? And it's free, but you have to be alive. So here you are, alive, joyful, and then you end up dying. And you haven't achieved nirvana, and you haven't become enlightened yet. So how do you die well? Well, if you're a religious Buddhist, you understand that karma is the thing that migrates lifetime to lifetime. And one of the aspects of karma is intention. The other aspect is speech, and then the other aspect is action. And speech and action becomes diminished quickly as you die. And they say the thought process, the brain can go on for quite a while. And so you're gonna have a lot of thoughts. And it's sort of like going to sleep, and you're not really in charge of all the thoughts, they just sort of happen by themselves. I had an interesting dream last night. I was with John F. Kennedy Jr. And we were hanging out together. And he was dressed really well. And you know, I'm thinking to myself, only in my dreams. (laughs) So none of us really know what's going to be happening as our brain starts to fall apart and dissolve. What kind of thoughts are we going to have? And those thoughts will not have time connected to them, that one or two of those thoughts could be eternal, because when you take time away, which is the measurement of change, and change sort of stops for a while or really slows down, you could have one thought that might feel, in the same way you could have a dream that feels like a week or a month, you could have a thought that feels like a year or a lifetime. And if it's an unpleasant thought, if it's a thought that's rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion. It would be the hell realm, literally. We would be in the hell realm. People would be looking at us, maybe friends and relatives and the doctor, and they'd be saying, well, should we unplug them? And you'd be in this lifelong hell realm trying to get out of that and not having the ability to do it because you keep getting weaker and weaker and the powers of thinking start to dissolve and ego, self, dissolves with it. So pretty soon, you know, it's just thinking, which sounds like a wonderful romantic ideal when you're meditating. But the reality in the death process, it could be really frightening and scary. So you've been working 30 years, 40 years, 50 years on your practice. You're cultivating generosity, compassion, and wisdom. You're cultivating good thoughts. You're cultivating thoughts that you hope will translate into speech and action while you're practicing. And that has a momentum that in spite of you losing it all, the momentum of your practice continues. You have, it's an automatic pilot now. It's going, working on itself. Cool. So you don't have to be there not thinking or thinking about good things. Your practice is just rolling right along. And now you take that last breath and have that last thought, and it turns out to be a good one because of your 30 or 40 years of practice. And that good thought becomes the first thought of the next lifetime. So you start off with good karma. Good karma, a good first thought. And then of course, you've got the rest of your life to screw it up. But you start with that first thought. So you can see that when people talk about, it's all about what we do now absolutely. Secular Buddhism, absolutely. Don't get religious, absolutely. But you know what? When you die, it's nice to have a religion. It's nice to have the idea. I'm not saying it's true, but it's nice to have the idea that you're going someplace and there's something you can do about it. And you don't have to rely on faith or a supreme being for that transformation, for that transition. And when I read and, and reflect on the early Buddhist tradition of Theravada, I see therapy, I see religion, I see having something to do morning, noon, and night, physically and mentally. And that gives me focus and anchor and makes me feel useful maybe not in everybody else's life, but in my own life, that I got stuff to do. And the older I get, the higher the level, I see I have less and less time to do it. So I'm less and less caught in the drama and the uselessness of doing this or that. And I especially don't like doing things just for fun. I'd rather do something that maybe doesn't have as much fun connected to it, but is more useful in the long run. So don't, but don't tell anybody, you know, because everybody wants to have fun. (laughs) (laughs) Cindy Lauper, did she say that? I think. Okay. So I'm going to ask if anybody has any questions or comments on what I've said so far. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. That's in, in fact, that's what they talked about to a certain extent, that, that the consciousness arises and passes away. It's a continual process. And and I really like that. At certain points, I was hoping he'd be more Buddhist, but he was a scientist. <laughs> and so he wasn't. Um, what it allowed me to do is, is really just by watching this, even a, one episode on what is reality, it allowed me to... to to look at my Buddhist practice in a, in a unique and different way, but, but, but it confirmed it, it didn't, it didn't make it false or invalid, it confirmed it, which I thought was really cool. So, you know, being a Buddhist is about being a good human, and it's not even more than good being a skillful human, but we have to understand how humans work you know, and so we can learn the physiology, we can, you know, uh, exercise and do yoga, we can do all that kind of stuff, but watching how the brain works is just fascinating, but we can use it to our advantage. Now, they did a a study on Catholic nuns, which I thought was fascinating, and and because the nuns were cloistered and had um, an environment of repetition, they would do pretty much the same things every day. They would pray, they would eat, they would do their work, and then they'd start again the next day. They followed them for years, and they did tests. They did psychological tests on them each year, and then when they died, the nuns gave them their brains so they could evaluate the brains. So it was interesting to see the nuns in, in the convent and then the nuns in the hospital as brains. They're all sort of like in their own little shelf, you know, and you pull them out. And then they would dissect the brain, and they would see if there's any signs of Alzheimer's or senility or blah, blah, blah. And in a great percentage, I think 40% of them, there was. There was some um, indication that they were suffering from Alzheimer's. And yet, and yet, during their everyday work and devotion, it wasn't apparent. And the scientists came to the conclusion that the brain... When one of its parts don't work quite as well as it should, there's a workaround. So it uses other available brain tissue to work that out. I thought, how fascinating is that? So we don't all have to get senile. We don't all have to become, you know, uh, suffer from Alzheimer's. Our brain actually has the ability to rewire itself and stay you know, effective. I think being a nun is, is, and being in that controlled environment is helpful, because when I look at a layperson's life, uh, it is chaotic and ever-changing, and the, the rules of the road change every mile. You know And you go to a monastery, and one of the things about the monastery is that you have a schedule, and, and that schedule happens every day, whether you want it to or not, and there's three o'clock. Prayer, there's five o'clock prayer, seven o'clock breakfast, more prayer, more work, every day, every day. So, one of the things I like about my lifestyle is that I have a base of operation that doesn't change too much. It pretty much looks and feels the same as it did 40 years ago. And within that stable environment, I have the opportunity to go out and investigate chaos and do everything for the first time and not have it be repetitive, and not have it be boring, because I've never done it before. And I've been coming here for four or five years, and every time I come here, it's always the first time. You know, And, and, and that's the best part about this practice of meditation and understanding that we are being reborn in every moment, and everything we're doing is being reborn as well. Thank you for the question or the comment. Anybody else have something they'd like to share about something? Good. Okay. Well, let me continue then. So I was at the Catholic school, and they asked about enlightenment. And she had been reading in her book about enlightenment. And she said, I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. You know, what the heck is enlightenment? Is it like nirvana? And I said, well, this is my understanding that when we achieve enlightenment, it does not end our suffering, it does not end our future rebirths. Enlightenment is an experience, it's an epiphany, it's one moment, and it is the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. And she said, could you say that again? (laughs) I said, sure. So, what does that mean? I think, for me, what that means is that any of us can experience it. You don't have to be a monk or a nun or smart or dumb. You just have to be alive. And there comes a time when we're doing something and unexpectedly, everything falls away and we feel connected to everything. Maybe that's where poetry comes from. And then that door closes, but the memory is there and the memory will fade and in Zen, they keep meditating even after their enlightenment experience because there is a momentary enlightenment experience, there's a longer enlightenment experience, sometimes there's a permanent enlightenment experience. And in early Buddhism, they didn't go in that direction. That wasn't the point. The point wasn't to see how you're connected to everything. The point was, we don't live very long, there's not much food, we're going to die, I'm suffering every day, How can I fix that? There's no medication available. And so in early Buddhism, what I see, I see humans who are desperate to end their suffering. And in modern world, we have ended our suffering in much different ways. We have created Disneyland. So we don't have to suffer for 12 hours if we have $100. And we have medications galore that will alter the way we experience the world and reduce and even end our suffering for a while. Unfortunately, we also end our reality for a while. So we have gone into a different direction than they did in India 2,600 years ago. But the thing is, it still works. This end of suffering still works even in 2015. And if you have suffering, if you aren't comfortable, you can find a place where everything is okay, where you have profound acceptance. But again, that doesn't happen when you become enlightened, according to me. When you become enlightened, according to me, you may even suffer more rather than less, which would lead you to understand if you take the Bodhisattva vow to save all sentient beings, as you're saving those seven billion sentient beings, you're also reducing your own suffering because you're connected to everybody. So now before you only had one way to suffer and that was your way. And now you have seven billion ways to suffer because you're connected to everyone. But the other side of the coin is before you only had one way to be happy. And now you have seven billion ways to be happy because you're connected to seven billion people. When you achieve nirvana, it is said you end your suffering in this very lifetime. You end your karma and you end all future rebirths because you've ended your karma. So why would you want to end all future rebirths? Isn't it good to be a person who exists? Isn't it better than not existing? And I would say, um, you know, probably not. You know, and that's why we should spay and neuter because we don't want a million cats being killed when they don't have to be if they're not born. And so a Buddhist would say, well, every time I was born, my parents died, because I outlived my parents almost every time. Every time I was born, I buried 12 cats because they didn't live as long as I did. Every time I was born, I was married two or three times, had child support and alimony. Every time I was born, and the list goes on. It's really hard to be a human being. Buddhism doesn't, you know, sugarcoat it. It says it's tough, and, and there aren't many good reasons to be here, you know? So somebody said, I was giving a talk. This is a, I was giving a talk in um, Ontario at an Indonesian Buddhist center. And I was a little hesitant because, you know, they were used to the Theravada Asian monks, Party line, Four Noble Truths, Eightfold Path, and then there was me. And I'm there and I'm smiling and I'm telling stories and people seem to be engaged and listening. And and then this woman says, I gotta ask you this question. People keep asking me why I'm here. Now that could be looked at in many different ways. You know, why are you here in Ontario? Why are you here in the human realm? How can you be here if you don't believe in God? You know, it could be looked at in many different ways. And I said, I've got a simple, clear answer that you give people the next time they say, why are you here? And she said, oh, please tell me. I said, okay, you are here because your parents had sex and you had karma. That's why you're here in Ontario. (laughs) You can blame your parents or your karma. So it's like, yeah, we keep getting reborn. Thankfully, we don't remember. You know, Thankfully, those memories of all the past lives where we had all those terrible things happen, we have forgotten. This always seems like the first time. I have never had a feeling of a past life. It's always, this seems like the first day of my life, now, after meditation, and the first time that I've ever lived. And, and I'm hoping there'll be another time, but I won't be there to remember And all this work and practice I've done in this lifetime does not translate into an advanced degree in the next lifetime. I start over again and I start over again and I keep starting over again. But they say once you achieve nirvana, you can see a hundred, thousand past lifetimes. There are all those seeds are available to us in the Bhavanga consciousness. And apparently, nirvana, we learn the code to unlock all those memories. But until then, they're all locked up, very secure, so we don't know. When we achieve nirvana and no longer exist because we can no longer be created, now this is a really important point. The problem with all life is that it's created. And now people say, oh, but the wonderful creator God, Brahman God, how lucky we are to have them, because that's why we all exist. But in every case of creation, it ends in destruction. Anything that's been created has to be destroyed sooner or later. You know, the trees might last 500 years, you know. The mountains might last 10,000 years. Humans might last 100 years. All those things were created. This earth was created. It's going to have to end as well one day. I think the Buddha understood this. Now, this is my, just my rumination or thought on the matter. I think the Buddha understood that and said, maybe I can figure out a way to exist without being born. And if I can do that, I'll never have to die. So, how do you exist without being born? You achieve nirvana. Nirvana is unborn and undying. There's no smell, there's no taste, there's no touch, there's no sound, there's no sight. None of our sense doors will be stimulated by nirvana. Even our thought, it's difficult to stimulate the thought with the idea of nirvana because it's unborn and undying and it doesn't have anything that we're used to. So it could be more like a parallel universe. I think the Buddha exists right now, today, in nirvana. It's not non-existent. It's just existence without creation, which allows us to have a refuge in our final days on earth. I can take refuge in nirvana, if I'm lucky enough to have worked hard to realize it. You see, it's already here. That's what they say. Nirvana, we're already in a state of nirvana. We just haven't realized it yet. So all the work we're doing is just to wake up to the fact that we're already there. Which is when I woke up this morning, I woke up to the fact that I was already in Los Angeles and didn't have to go there. Cool. Now, if we're not so lucky, we have many, many more rebirths. Thankfully, we don't have the memories of all the past rebirths and all the sadness and tears we've shed. And we continue, and we continue, and then we come to the Dharma, and we start in a very small way, I'm going to end my suffering. And then we start to see, I not only can end my suffering, I can end my karma, and I can end all future rebirths and never have to suffer again. So that's when it goes from secular to religious. That's when it makes the transition. And not everybody's going to do that in one lifetime. Not everybody's going to say, I need that religion. They might say, I need that therapy so I can feel good about myself, so I can be happy once in a while, so I don't have to suffer as much as I have. But there's more to it. It's the whole package. So why only why only take half the package when the whole package is available, and you don't have to do anything different. You don't even have to believe there's karma. You don't even have to believe there's nirvana or an afterlife. All you have to do is understand it's on page 34. That's good enough. So people ask you, is it true? You say it's on page 34. Is the book true? It's on page 34. So, you know, I've come to understand that, you know, it doesn't matter what we think. It might still just be what it is. You know, no matter what we think about it, whether it's right or wrong. So somebody said yesterday at... Leisure World, well, you know, you you talk about all this stuff, and you say you don't bring us anything, and so why don't you just sit and do nothing? Why don't you just come in the room, sit down, and do nothing? Which is what we did for the first half hour today. And I said, well, you know, people expect me to say something. And if I had done that, they would have all left, or fallen asleep. It would have... So they want you to say something, and they want to think you know what you're talking about. And they hope you have a certificate hanging on your wall (laughs) that identifies you as someone who knows what they're talking about. And then we share, you know, our lack of knowledge with each other, and then we all go home. And how wonderful is that? We don't have to believe in anything. The only thing we need is a little confidence The confidence necessary to think there might be something in the world that will help me end my suffering. That's all you need. And then you test it out day in and day out and it proves to be true. And miraculously, all the faith you had in the beginning transforms into confidence in the end. That it works. And it works for you. And it might work for other people, but you can't tell them it might work for them. What you tell them is it works for you. And you might be able to tell them how to do it, but you really can't tell them how to do it. What you tell them is how you do it. You give them permission to choose. And if they don't choose, it's fine. They won't die. They'll just suffer a little more than you. That's okay have compassion, wish them well on their journey, <laughs> and go get a cup of coffee. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. One thing, yes. What, the lady were, what was her epiphany, what did, she, did she share it with you? No, she didn't. I, I wanted to think that what I said was actually the catalyst for her epiphany. But she said, no, what I said was just one of the things necessary for her to have this epiphany. That there were eight other things in place already. And there was one missing piece. And what I said was the missing piece. You know? And, and what I said was simply, loving kindness is the intention and compassion is the activity. And that's all I said. And I've said it before, probably a hundred times, and nobody's ever had an epiphany. Laughter you came to you and told you yes it, that not, does not mean that people aren't experiencing change oh and you sound just like this other woman that was there and you know what I said to, her? <laughs> and you know what I said to her I don't know exactly. I don't know but that's not the purpose right? That's, well no it's, it's best that I don't know exactly. it's really good for my mental health that I don't know that's, that's the process I'm, I'm, excuse me, I'm, yeah. that's the process and I think the more that we have the ability to just be free mm-hmm. and love, live in loving and kindness and then accept the fact that you may be affecting people and that those people never have to check in with you to say that you affected me in one way or another. <laughs> exactly. Yes. That's, and, of course, the wisest people know the least. Because the more you know, you realize the more you don't know. You, so, see, it's just so I'm coming to the place in my practice where I know less than I did five years ago. And I'm happy about it. It's sort of nice not to know. They said in that brain episode, they said, a dog can smell things 10,000 times more than a human. That's how acute their smelling is. And I thought to myself, I am so lucky to be human. (laughs) (laughs) You know, living in Los Angeles, you don't want to smell it 10,000 times better. So, I struggle with that. I struggle with the idea that people think I'm supposed to do something, and and if I do it well, if I do nothing well, they want to congratulate me. Oh, that was wonderful. You did nothing so well. And 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 then I have to be there and take their acceptance because if I I said it wasn't me, it'd make them feel bad. And if I said it was just me in that one moment, they wouldn't understand it. So I, I embrace them and say thank you for your kind words. But they're speaking to themselves really that they had a good time in spite of me being there. They learned something in spite of me. Thank you. So sometimes not knowing is the best place to be just responding to what's going on right now in the present moment and not stepping out of it with thought and memory and intellect because that always separates us from what we're doing right now. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, and with that, our our time, that's a great way to end too. Our time has come to an end. Let's do a quick loving kindness meditation for everybody and call it a day. May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome The inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free, the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, may the sick find health relief.